Would you uh, please take your Bible and open with me to Judges chapter 13. The Old Testament book of Judges chapter 13. We are um, going through this series right now called Looking to Jesus to uh, see how the entirety of the Bible really only tells one single story. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of God's love for you and for me through his only son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again so that we could be made right with God and we could know him forever. And part of the way that we have set out to learn this uh, is by identifying some of the key themes within the word of God but also stopping at some of the key stories in Scripture that serve to point us to all that our Savior has done for us. And that brings us today to Judges chapter 13. Judges 13 tells the story of the birth of Samson. But we likely know Samson more for the Sunday school stories that we've heard about him in the past. Samson is big, he is strong, he is unusually powerful. In fact, he is so remarkably strong that One day, while he's walking to a nearby village to find his future wife, he tears a roaring lion to pieces with his bare hands. Pretty unusual. Short while later, he catches 300 foxes all by himself and somehow manages to tie those foxes all together by their tails, and then he sticks torches in the tails that he has tied together, and he sets those foxes free to run through the grain fields of the Philistines and set all of their crops on fire. As you can imagine, the Philistines kind of frowned upon that. So they set out to get Samson, and they captured him. But after they capture Samson for doing that, Samson breaks out of the ropes that were holding his arms together, and he kills 1,000 Philistine enemies with the jawbone of a donkey. But maybe the part of Samson's life that we are most familiar with is his relationship with Delilah who persistently begs him to tell her the source of his unusual strength. Little did Samson know that she had been bribed along the way to get this information from him, and so Samson lies to her a couple of times about the source of his strength and makes a fool out of her, but Delilah keeps coming after him anyway, so eventually Samson gives in and tells her that his hair has never been cut. And If someone were to shave his head, then all of his strength would leave him, which, by the way, is my excuse too. Just putting that out there. And he says that when that happens, when someone shaves his head, he would become weak just like any other man. So one night, Samson falls asleep next to Delilah, and he is in such a deep sleep that Delilah has one of their servants come over and shave his head while he is sleeping. And then Delilah wakes him up and starts tormenting him, and she's telling him that The Philistines are coming after him. It's like the guy's worst nightmare. And so then he wakes up and he's all groggy and he thinks to himself, well, I'll just do to them what I've done to them every other time. I'll just overpower them with my unusual supernatural strength. Except that Samson has no idea what has been done to him while he was fast asleep. And the Bible says this in Judges chapter 16. Verse 20 says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. So his hair had been cut, his head had been shaved, and because of that, the presence of the Lord had left him. We'll explain why that matters in just a little bit. But for now, Judges 16, verse 21 says, And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. 
and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. So Samson's life, obviously, to this point, has taken a drastic turn for the worse. Later, the Philistines are celebrating and they're worshiping their false god because they believe that their false god has given Samson over to them and they're relieved that this guy who has killed so many of their people along the way is now in their custody and he's going to pay for all of the crimes that he has committed against them. So one day, literally thousands of people have gathered to celebrate this victory that they have captured Samson and so now they call Samson out to entertain them. Samson is standing there in front of this massive throng of people, and he's leaning against the pillars of this temple to their false god. Now, just try and picture in your mind what's happening here. Thousands of people are gathered in this temple courtyard. The Bible says that 3,000 more people are standing up on the roof of this temple, looking down, watching what is happening, and they're being entertained by Samson, who at this point is doing who knows what. But don't forget that by this point, Samson's eyes have been gouged out. He can't see anything. He probably has no idea what's going on around him. He has been bound in their prison. He has been forced into manual labor. And now they are making an absolute mockery of him. And this is how the life and leadership of Samson comes to an end. Listen to Judges 16 and verse 28. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. And so this is the tragic end to Samson's life. But even more tragic than the way that he died was the way that he lived. For as supernaturally strong and as incomparably powerful as Samson was, Samson was also impulsive. He was spiteful. He was vengeful. He was petty. He was filled with lust and selfishness. And perhaps, worst of all, all of those things were simply the symptoms of something far deeper that was going on within his own heart, which ultimately was an indifference to the things of God. Which, when you think about it, makes the selection of Samson as a judge to save Israel, all the more astonishing. Because Judges 13 is not simply a story about Samson and his birth. Judges 13 is not simply a story about his parents, who to this point nobody has ever heard of. Nor is this even a story of how Samson's life and leadership were significantly framed by the apathetic culture in which he lived. First and foremost, Judges 13 is a vivid illustration of how God saves his people. It's an illustration of how God saves his people. And this is so important for us because this is at the heart of our relationship with God. 
Like for every person who's sitting here in this room right now, every person who sits in this room for all of our services across the weekend, for every child who's gathered in a classroom and harvest kids right now, for every person who ever knows the Lord, this is at the heart of our relationship with God. The realization that we have been saved by a, a holy and a loving God who should rightfully judge us for the sins that we have committed against him, but instead he rescues us from his own eternal wrath, and he gives us life. And a right realization of that, of what God has done for us, should compel us then to give our lives back to him. I mean, this is so important because, just think about this for a minute with me. It can be so easy for us to go through the course of our lives with so many good things on the go and so many different things that need to, be get, that need to get done. And, and we have family things over here, and we have work things over here, and we have church things up here, and we have other things down here. And, and we get so caught up in those things that before we even know it sometimes, days go by, and weeks go by, and maybe even months go by, and we cannot even remember the last time that we got lost in the wonder of our salvation. Maybe even more challenging still is that we come to church on a weekend like this, just a normal garden variety weekend, and we do things at church that we do every weekend because it is critical for us to do them as we gather together as the body of Christ. So we bow our heads and we close our eyes and we pray, and, and without even realizing that it's happening, Somebody's standing up here at the front and and leading us in prayer. And and before we even know that it's going on, we're thinking about all of the other people that we need to talk to when the service is over. And we're thinking about how we need to get the kids to this place later and how we need to take care of the grandkids in that place after. And, And I've got this thing on Tuesday that I need to be getting ready for. And then all of a sudden, the the person who's leading in prayer comes to the end of the prayer and they say amen. And all of a sudden, it's like we snap back into reality and... Like maybe that's even happened for a bunch of us here this morning already. Not only that, but maybe we experience something similar when, when we sing these songs that we spent the last half hour singing and these songs that are deep in doctrine and rich in theology and teach us about the very wonder of our salvation, but we sing a lot of these songs and we know the words and the tune is familiar And so we sing along, and the words are coming out of our mouths, but our minds are drifting to somewhere else, and and we're just not getting lost in the miracle of what God has done for us. Now hear me when I say all this. I'm, I'm not saying that we're not thankful for what God has done for us. I'm not saying that at all. I I know that we are. I know from conversations I've had with many of you and conversations that I hear that are happening that we are thankful for what God has done for us. I'm just simply acknowledging the reality of my own life, and I think that it's probably true for you as well, that sometimes we get so consumed by what God is doing around us that we forget all about the miracle of what God has done within us. And so, Judges 13 This passage that, were we not going through this series, we may never come to. Judges 13, in a culture that had drifted far from God, among a people who were not even searching for God, nor did they even know how to respond to God when they saw him. 
Like all in Judges 13, we see this great salvation that God provides for his people. We see that God is so good to us. If you're looking for a big idea this morning, that's it. God is so good to us. And so the title of today's message, Such a Great Salvation. Such a great salvation. I mean, in so many ways, hear this, like there is not one sermon that can exhaust all of what God has done for us in our salvation. Like, I can't do that in one sermon. Couldn't do that in a series of sermons. You could spend a lifetime of preaching and never fully exhaust the reality and the glory of what God has done for us in this great salvation that he has given to us. But, but listen, I just want so much. I want so much for you and I want so much for me again this morning to be caught up and to be lost in the wonder of what God has done for us. Because it is glorious, it is great, it is astounding. This is such a great salvation. So we're going to approach this passage today in Judges 13 with three major headings that remind us why God is so good to us. So first of all, notice this, number one, the grace that pursues us. The grace that pursues us. Let's begin reading Judges 13 and verse 1. And the people of Israel again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember how that one phrase at the start of verse 1 is repeated many times through the book of Judges. It actually marks the beginning of a pattern of behavior with the Israelites. And so the pattern begins with their rebellion. They turn away from God and his ways, which leads then to retribution, In other words, God leads them into a time of discipline at the hands of their enemies. In this case, in Judges 13, their enemies are the Philistines. That then would be followed by repentance, or at the very least, a cry for relief from the Israelites. They would realize that the hardship of their life was because of their rebellion against God, and so they cry out to God for deliverance, at which point God, in his grace, would then send a judge to rescue them from the oppression that they were experiencing. So this is the cycle that repeats itself again. Rebellion, retribution, repentance, and rescue. And so Judges 13 now begins against the backdrop of that very familiar pattern. And they're living under the oppression of the Philistines for a grand total of 40 years. So notice verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So what's being described here in these first few verses of chapter 13 is what is called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow. It's explained more fully in Numbers chapter 6, but basically this Nazarite vow contains three major parts that were supposed to become central to Samson's life. 
The first commitment in the Nazarite vow was that the person taking the vow could not drink any wine or strong drink, just like it's outlined here in these verses. They had to be sober-minded and focused on what God wanted them to do. The second commitment in the vow was that you could not eat anything unclean. And more specifically, according to Numbers chapter 6, you could not have any contact with a dead body because that would make you unclean and therefore unfit to do what God was calling you to do. And then the third commitment of the Nazarite vow was that the person could not cut their hair for the duration of the vow. This was often used as an outward signal that you're committing yourself to a certain goal. It's like if you're watching the NHL playoffs right now and hockey players grow these crazy looking beards during the playoffs but, and they don't shave the beards off until they're eliminated from the playoffs. It's kind of like that. If you make this Nazarite vow, you don't cut your hair until your vow is completed. Furthermore, a person always entered into this Nazarite vow voluntarily and temporarily. But notice here that things are different for Samson. First, he does not enter this vow voluntarily. Verse 5 The angel says to the woman, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. And then notice this, For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. So the first difference is that Samson is not entering into this vow voluntarily. He's being set apart by God before he's even born. So Samson doesn't enter into the vow voluntarily, nor did he enter into the vow temporarily. Take a look again at verse 7. Manoah's wife is telling Manoah all that the angel has said to her, and she says to him in verse 7, But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God, here it is, from the womb to the day of his death. So there would be no end to this vow for Samson. This was to be his life, set apart by God from his first breath to his final breath. So he did not enter the vow voluntarily. He did not enter the vow temporarily. But the last part may be the most troubling, and that is that he never fulfilled the vow willingly. Throughout the course of his life, Samson would break all of these major components of the Nazarite vow, and he would break these components repeatedly. So we read this, and we learn this, and we think to ourselves, like, how could Samson ever be the one that God would use to deliver his people? I mean, if Samson is this messed up, then how will he deliver a people who are just as messed up as he is? Which leads us then to something else that we need to see here. Remember this pattern that the people would go through? Rebellion, retribution, repentance, and then rescue. It's the pattern we've seen all the way along. The people would turn away from God, and then God would discipline them, and then the people would cry out to God, and God would deliver them. And last week, we looked at a few examples where we see that pattern play out as God raises up this series of judges. But what do you notice about that pattern here in Judges 13? The pattern's not there. The pattern's not here. Like, all we're told is that the people rebelled against God, and then God disciplines the people. After that, there's no crying out to God because of their hardship. It's just an extended period of God's people living under the rule and the oppression of the Philistines. Why? Because the people had become so used to living in a sinful culture that they saw no need to turn back to God. And that's, interestingly, exactly the way that God said that it would happen. If you go back to Judges chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, this is what God says before these cycle of judges even begins to go through the nation of Israel. You can turn back. Judges 2, verse 18, says this. 
Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. So notice that. One generation to the next, into the next, into the next. They get more corrupt. They get farther and farther away from God. Verse 19, when the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So that's Judges 2. Fast forward then to Judges chapter 10. As we get closer to Samson's time, and notice how things have degenerated so significantly. Judges 10, starting at verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's that phrase again. And served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. So notice that. The people of Israel are being absolutely crushed. They are being demolished because of the oppression that they are under, and they are not even trying to turn back to God. Like the people are in this downward spiral that keeps getting worse with every passing generation because every passing generation keeps falling into the trap of Judges 13 and verse 1, where it says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So by the time now that we get to Samson, the people have spiraled so far down that they are not only not trying, but they are not even wanting to get back out. They're not even wanting to give up the life of sin that they're living. This in Judges 13, verse 1, this is the last time that that phrase appears in the whole book of Judges. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But as we get closer to the end of the book of Judges, that phrase is repeated by a parallel phrase. Notice this, Judges 17, verse 6. says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it appears there. And then again, Judges 21, verse 25, at the very end of the book. This is the final paragraph of the whole book. This is the summary of the book of Judges. This is how it ends, the exact same statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, the people saw nothing wrong with the way that they were living, and they were not even trying to go after God. See, every cycle through the Judges is a wake-up call for that generation. And loved ones, let this be a wake-up call for us in our generation today. Sin is not simply defined by what we determine to be good or bad. Sin is not simply defined by what our government tells us is acceptable or not. Sin is defined by what God says is right and wrong. See, it doesn't really matter what is right in our own eyes or not because it's not our own eyes that ultimately matter. What matters is how God sees our world. What matters is how God defines our existence. What matters is how God has determined life to be lived. And what matters is what is good or evil in the sight of the Lord. One of the great needs of Christianity today and 
I think even one of the greatest needs to bring revival within our own hearts today is for us as Christians to see our sin the way that God sees our sin. To not be so concerned with how other people define it, but to be ultimately consumed by how much God detests it. And and I fear that when I look deep enough into my own heart, that when we look long enough at our own lives, that we will most definitely find sins that somewhere along the way have become right in our own eyes. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, Like those sins that, for one reason or another, have become acceptable to us. Those sins that we know that on some level they're wrong, but we tolerate them anyway, and we end up saying things like, well, if you actually knew even just a little bit of what I'm going through in my life right now, then you would understand why I'm so anxious all the time. We say things like, I just can't help the way that I am. It's the way my mom was, and it's the way that her mom was, and it's the way that her mom before her was, and that's why I am the way that I am, and I've just gotten used to it. We say things like, sure, I'm frustrated so much in my life, and, and I'm impatient almost all the time, and, and I've got so much anger within my heart, and, and I'm worried about all of these number of different things. But, and then we like, append it by saying something like, but who doesn't struggle with those things? We say things like, sure, I'm, I'm not very thankful, or I know that I'm a little more than judgmental, or, or I can see the selfishness within my own heart that just rears its ugly head in just about every situation. But who doesn't deal with that? And sometimes we talk about these things as if the common struggles that they are gives us the freedom to not do anything about them. And I'm just concerned that so many things have become so right in our own eyes that we have willingly exchanged lasting joy at the altar of temporary pleasure. I mean, this was some of the world that Samson was born into, and this is just a tiny fraction of the world that you and I live in today, and and this is why it is so important, loved ones, so important for us to make so much of the grace of God that pursues us. Like, it's because we live in this kind of world, and it's because our hearts are captured by these kinds of things that makes God's grace all the more amazing. It makes God's grace all the more astounding. I mean, just think about the way that we see it here in Judges 13. These people are doing nothing to pursue God. They're doing nothing at all to go after him. Their sin had become so familiar to them that they did not even see their need for God. And yet, because God is gracious to them and because God is gracious to us, he pursues us. God is pursuing his people here, even though his people are not pursuing him. And then God appears to this woman, and this woman says in verse 6 that God was very awesome. Like, just stop and and consider that for a minute. He is very awesome. Like, not awesome in the sense of, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. Like, wow, I wish I could be a little bit more like that. It's not like that. It's like awesome in the sense of he is holy. He is so different than me. He is so much higher and stronger and glorious and wonderful than me. And he is the one to whom I need to bow down and I need to live my life in surrender to him. He is awesome. And then God begins this process of salvation out of apparent nothingness. We notice this, this woman in chapter 13, this This woman doesn't have children because 
she can't have children, and then God comes to her and says, you're going to have a child. And God is about to take an impossible situation and make it possible. We read this story, we don't even know this woman's name. That's because she's not the focal point of the story. God is. The fact that God is even showing up to them right now is a massive sign of his grace. Like God is about to use this circumstance where there is no life to bring about life and to bring about deliverance. And that is what God does for us in the gift of salvation. Like I read this and, and I think of Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says that, that every single one of us in this room right now, every single child down in Harvest Kids, every single person who walks the face of the earth for all time, we were all living Judges 13. Like we're all following the ways of this world and living out the passions of our flesh and carrying out our own desires. And because of that, we were dead in our sins. Like dead in our sins. Like no life, no breathing, no activity. It's not like there's a, a little bit of life here, a little bit of a pulse there, and a little bit of movement over there. No, no, we were dead in our sins. And then Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, but God. Like I, I love that. I love it when the Bible says, but God. Like, you know, when you see those two words together, but God, that changes everything, right? Like, that makes a bad day good. But God, because he is rich in mercy. And but God, because of the great love with which he loves us, he pursued us. He snatches us from the grip of nothingness when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and he brings life to us where there is no life. He has delivered us when we didn't even know we needed to be delivered. He has rescued us when we didn't even want to be rescued. He came to us when we were not even looking for him. God has come to us and he has taken what looks to be an impossible situation and he makes it possible. And why does he do all of this? He does it because of his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So loved ones, rejoice in the grace of God that pursues us. Rejoice in the grace of God that saves us. Rejoice in this grace that not only saves us from our sins, but rejoice in this grace that saves us from having to make all of the excuses that we make for our sins. You don't have to keep living your life that way. You don't have to keep going through those same patterns over and over again because that's what dad did and that's what grandpa did and that's what grandpa did before him. And No, you don't have to do that. That doesn't have to be your life anymore. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You don't have to keep doing that because the grace of God is so big and so glorious and so wonderful that it washes all of our sins away. So notice this. The grace of God pursues us, but then see this next. The kindness that transforms us. So Samson's soon-to-be parents don't realize that it's God that has appeared to them in the form of this angel. And so Manoah, Samson's father, prays that God would send this angel back to them to explain how they're supposed to raise this child. And so God appears to them again in the form of this angel and, and tells them the same thing that he did the first time about the Nazarite vow, but then everything changes in verse 17. Judges 13, verse 17. 
And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. The angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such great things as these. So Manoah asks the angel, he asks God what his name is and God responds by saying, verse 18, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Verse 19, he is the God who works wonders. When was the last time that you were just amazed by how wonderful God is? Like to the point where you're not even sure that you can describe in words how wonderful he is to you. Maybe to the point where tears are running down your cheeks. You're just so overwhelmed by the reality that he has saved you. So overwhelmed by the reality that he has washed all of your sins away. So overwhelmed that he has pursued you so that he could make you right with him. So overwhelmed that that God would come to you and he is changing you from the inside out and you know that he is. Just overwhelmed at the reality that Jesus is your Lord and he is your savior, your redeemer, your justifier, your deliverer, your hope, your rock, your refuge, your provider, your protector, your helper, your leader, that Jesus is all of these things and so many more things to you and that you are overwhelmed by the reality that he loves you with a love that will never fail you even when you fail him. Listen to Psalm 139. Just just be overwhelmed by how much God knows you and how much he loves you. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. 
even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. When was the last time you thought deeply about who God is to the point that in some sense you are almost left speechless by the reality of Psalm 139? By how intimately God knows you and yet loves you anyway? How often do you stop long enough to consider who God is and what God has done for you at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you are just overwhelmed by the reality that my God is so wonderful to me. And that who he is and what he is doing in your life is almost on some level just too wonderful to even describe. Sometimes we push back against something like that because we want a God that we can understand. Maybe even a God that we can predict at times and, and maybe we're okay if we can't predict his moves every time as long as his moves are not too radical or too demanding upon our lives. But think about this for a minute. Isn't that what an encounter with the living God is supposed to lead to? Shouldn't a profound encounter with a perfect God lead to a powerful transformation within our lives? Isn't that the point of the gospel? A profound encounter with a perfect God leading to a powerful transformation within our lives. I mean, we see this in the Bible so much. People have a profound encounter with a perfect God, and it leads to a powerful transformation within their lives. Just think about it. Abraham. So Abraham encounters God and was profoundly humbled by who he was compared to who God is. And that sets Abraham's life in a completely different direction. From that particular point in his life, Abraham packs up everything that he has, takes all of his family, goes to a place that he has never been to before, never heard of before, but he's going there because he's encountered the living God and God told him to go. Isaiah. Isaiah encountered God in all of his glory and was immediately brought to a place of his own unworthiness. And from that point forward, it sets Isaiah's life in a completely different direction. He has this glorious, majestic vision of the Lord sitting on his throne, the holiness, the majesty of God. He sees the train of his robe filling the temple. He is high and lifted up. Smoke is filling the temple. The doorposts of the temple are shaking in the presence of God. Isaiah sees this. He realizes how completely unworthy he is and the first thing that Isaiah says as a result of that is, Lord, here I am, send me. The Apostle Paul encounters the risen Jesus Christ in all of his glory on the road to Damascus, and he is completely humbled. And upon realizing what has happened to him, that sets the entirety of his life from that point forward in a completely different direction. Up to that point, Saul was known as the one who was persecuting Christians and killing Christians. He was persecuting the church. 
And then he meets the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He's blinded, and then his sight is restored to him, and he realizes that he has encountered the living Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And when he realizes that, the very next verse in the book of Acts tells us that Paul then goes into the synagogues, and he proclaims the name of Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. The Apostle John encounters the risen Jesus Christ in all of his glory and he falls at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. And for the short bit of life that John had left after that, it sets his life in a completely new direction. Profound encounter with a perfect God leads to a powerful transformation. And it is no different for you and me, loved ones. We may not encounter God in the same way that they did, but we most certainly encounter the same God that they did. And he is still just as wonderful. He is still just as transcendent. He is still just as glorious and still just as worthy. Jesus is worthy of us falling on our faces before him and sacrificing our lives for the purpose of his will and for the spread of his gospel. Like we need to see this. We need to see that the call to give our lives in surrender to God is not a call that is based on guilt. It is a call that is based on goodness. Okay, the call to surrender our lives to God is not a call that is based on guilt. It is based on goodness and specifically on the goodness of God. That when we are encountered by the goodness and the the greatness and the glory of this amazing God, that we will then live our lives in holiness and we will then share this glorious gospel and we will then use our resources, we will use our time and our treasures and our talents and our finances and everything that we have and we will spend our lives because God has been so good to us. See, Manoah learned something really important that day that we learned through the life of Jesus. We learned that God has drawn near to us, not to destroy us, but to save us. And to set us apart for a life that is lived for his purposes. So God sends his only son. And God appears to a couple that never would have expected to have a child. And he uses them to send his only son into the world to give ultimately his life as an offering. And it was the only offering that would be accepted by God also that we could be delivered from our rebellion against God. And let me ask us loved ones, how can we then not look at this God and just be overwhelmed by how good he is to us? Remember that old chorus, God is so good. Remember that? I remember singing that in church so many times, like over and over. I could sing it in my sleep. And God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. We're actually going to sing that song in a few minutes when we close our service and, and that chorus along with some new verses. And, and just listen to what we're going to sing in a few minutes. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. God, you're so good. You are so good to me. I am blessed, I am called, I am healed, I am whole. I am saved in Jesus' name. Highly favored and anointed, filled with your power for the glory of Jesus' name. 
Just think about that for a minute. If those things are true for you right now, if those things are true, then this is a good day. This is a great day for you because God is so good. He goes on and says, and should this life bring suffering, Lord, I will remember what Calvary has bought for me both now and forever. God, you're so good. God, you are so good. God, you are so good. You're so good to me. I mean, this is who we are because of what God has done for us. He is so good. And it's true, isn't it? It's true because his grace pursues us and his kindness transforms us. And then finally, number three, the mercy that delivers us. The mercy that delivers us. So notice the end of chapter 13, verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. See, the people in Judges 13 did not deserve to be delivered, and yet God still sent one who would deliver them. We don't deserve to be delivered, and yet God still sent the one who would deliver us. You need to see right here at at this point, that Samson has everything going for him from the day that he's born. Verse 24, as he grew up, the Lord blessed him. Verse 25, the spirit of the Lord led him to the work that was set aside for him. The heartbreaking problem is that we read into chapters 14 and 15 and 16, and we learn that for as strong as Samson is, his weaknesses are even stronger. And he will fall short at almost every turn. And so on the one hand, Samson reminds us that God can still work through sinners just like us. And he can even work through sinful situations to show his grace and to keep his promises and remember, loved ones, that nothing will ever outshine the grace of God. But on the other hand, Samson reminds us how much we need a deliverer who is even greater still. See, Samson was the only judge chosen by God before he was born, which tells us that God had a plan in place before that plan came to be seen by humanity, all of which reminds us of Galatians 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem us, that we might be adopted as his children. That God had a plan in place long before the creation of the world by which he would deliver his people who were not pursuing him. See, Samson points us forward to the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, Christ was forsaken before the foundation of the world, or sorry, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and our hope are in the one who shows the mercy that delivers us. Like just think for a second about the mercy that has been shown to us in this amazing gift of salvation. We need a sacrifice who will give his life because we deserve to die as a penalty for our sins, but Christ paid the penalty for us. We need a substitute who will take our place because we deserve to bear God's wrath against our sins, but Christ is our propitiation. In other words, Christ has absorbed the full wrath of God against our sins so that his wrath against us could then be turned into favor toward us upon faith in Christ. We need redemption. 
Because we were in bondage to our sin and the kingdom of Satan, but Jesus has rescued us from that bondage. We need to be reconciled to God because our sins separate us from the holy God. But because of the saving work of Jesus Christ in our place, we are made right with God both now and forever. Not to mention the reality that we have been chosen and called and regenerated and adopted and justified and sanctified and glorified. And because of what Christ has done for us, we will be in the presence of God forever. This is the mercy that delivers us. This is the greatness of our salvation. So loved ones, I plead with us today. Let us not lose sight of the reality that for all of our shortcomings and for all of our inadequacies and for all of our sin that so easily entangles us, let's not forget that the Lord has blessed us. Let's not forget that he has empowered his people by his spirit, much like we read about Samson in these final couple of verses. He has empowered us by his spirit to take his word to the nearest places and the farthest reaches of his creation so that all people will hear of his goodness and fall on their faces to the ground and worship this God who is worthy of all of our lives for the rest of our lives. Like, let's not lose sight of this so quickly that when we sing the songs that are familiar... We pray the prayers that are essential. That we will be captured all over again by our God who is so wonderful and good to us. Let's let Charles Spurgeon have the final word. Speaking of the nature of salvation and all that God has done for us, Spurgeon said this. It is a great mystery. Certainly it is entirely superhuman. We cannot contribute to it. Man cannot make himself to be born again. His first birth is not of himself, and his second birth is not one jot more so. It is a work of the Holy Ghost, a work of God. It is a new creation. It is a quickening. It is a miracle from beginning to end. To receive Christ, a man must be born of God. It is the simplest thing in all of the world. One would think to open the door of the heart and let him in. But no man lets Christ into his heart till first God has made him to be born again, born from above. This is indeed a great salvation. We are saved by the God of grace who pursues us, the God of kindness who transforms us, and the God of mercy who delivers us.